welcome in to episode number nine of the Zach Evans podcast entitled, What is Worse Than Idolatry? What could be worse than idolatry? And we'll talk about what that is in just a second. But first, I want to give some updates and exciting news. A couple things. One, we've had more listeners from around the world, which is very interesting. New Zealand, Brazil, uh, Turkey, the Ukraine, other countries that have tuned into the podcast. Very, very cool. And no matter where you are, we're glad that you're listening. The second thing is, through some very generous donations, we have been able to acquire a new microphone. And really, a, a few new microphones, but uh, one is the audio that you're hearing right now is recorded on a brand new Shure MV7. And this is a fantastic microphone, and I am really enjoying recording on this thing. Uh, the audio is significantly better, and I mean, it sounds great. And uh, way less kind of weird noises off in the background. I mean, the the previous microphone. If you go back and you listen really closely, you can hear the like the mini fridge that I have in my office sometimes when it would kind of gurgle on and off. Like you could hear it, or if the air conditioner was running, you just hear that that humming in the background. So, uh, but this one cancels out a lot of that. Does a really good job of just isolating the voice, and so I'm having a blast just talking into this thing right now because it sounds so good in my ears. So anyway, thank you so much, those of you who have donated and made that possible and uh, working on a couple other things with equipment upgrades just to improve the sound because I know that's really important to me when I listen to things. And of course, we just want to do things the best that we can. So thank you for that. Also, uh, next week, will be our second Q&A episode, which I'm very excited about. The first one was very, very popular, uh, probably is one of our most popular episodes. And so we're going to do a second one. We have some leftover questions from last time, but we'd like to add to that. So if you have a question that you would like to be on the Q&A, and I can only do so many, but if you could uh, post those on social media, there'll be a, a Q&A post there. You can comment your question. Um, if you'd rather be anonymous, you can DM them to me on any platform, and uh, you can email me. Some people have done that. Or, uh, again, if you know me, just walk up to me and state your question, and uh, we'll try to answer those. So I enjoyed doing the last one. We'll enjoy doing this one uh, for you as well and hope that it'll continue to be a blessing. So that'll be next week. But for this week, our topic is what is worse than idolatry? So what could be worse than that? I mean, what could be worse than worshiping a false god? What could be worse than, you know, paganism? Well, that's the question that we're going to answer today. So we're going to jump into that. But if you haven't already, make sure you follow the podcast and subscribe and leave us a five-star review if you can. That would be great. And if you're interested in donating to the podcast, there's a link in the description that you can follow to become one of our monthly supporters. So... Here we go. Let's answer the question, what is worse than idolatry? Jeremiah 16, verse 10. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass when thou shalt show this people all these words, and they shall say unto thee, Wherefore hath the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then shalt thou say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. Now notice verse 12. 
and ye have done worse, and ye have done worse than your fathers. Now why? Here's a question. Okay, so what he just described is what we see all throughout the Old Testament, which is Israel leaving the true God to worship false gods. When they mess up, that's what it looks like. And then he says to this generation in verse 12, but you guys have done something worse. Worse. What is worse than idolatry? What's worse than worshiping a false god? What is worse than paganism? All right, let's keep going. For behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. So God makes a statement here that if you don't pay attention, you'll just like zoom right over it and not see it. But he says essentially this, that self-worship is worse than idolatry. Self-worship is worse than idolatry. So without going super, super into the weeds on what's happening here in this chapter, but if we kind of zoom out to Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah prophesies that Israel would be, he says, removed into all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. So at this point in Old Testament history, King Josiah's Reformation has come and gone. And I make the case that Josiah's revival, right, where they find the book of the law in the temple and everybody reforms themselves and they hold uh, Passover for the first time in a long time, or they, yeah, they hold Passover for the first time in a long time. I make the case that that was primarily a secular revival. It wasn't really a heart revival of the people. What happened was that God turned the heart of the king and then the king kind of by fiat reformed the people. The people's hearts really didn't change. And the proof of that is God's like, yeah, I'm still going to judge you once it was over, which is a very interesting idea. After Josiah dies, Israel places Jehoahaz, his son, on the throne, but he reigns for like three months. The Egyptians take Jerusalem, remove Jehoahaz, and put Eliakim, his brother, on the throne and change his name to what we know him as, which is Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim was really, really wicked. This guy was a bad dude. Talks about him in Jeremiah 22. It says, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong. Thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness. <laughs> you wouldn't have eyes if it wasn't to covet what other people have. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a pretty cool statement by God there. That's very nice. And for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. So basically, Jehoahaz set himself to be a violent covetous person to kill and to steal. All right, so during the 11 years of Jehoiakim's reign, before the Babylonians carried him away, bound in fetters and ransacked the temple, Jeremiah was busy preaching sermons like that, preaching against sin in the streets of Jerusalem. So as we read in Jeremiah 15 and 16, we see that God gives a thorough explanation of all the horrors that Israel would experience because of the sin of Manasseh. Okay, so they did all these terrible things. I mean, if you read about the things that Manasseh did, where I believe he was the one that was causing his own children to pass through the fire unto Molech, like the king of Israel, whose dad was Hezekiah, one of the most righteous kings that Israel ever had. Um, and we always try to make connections, some, and we should, I guess, to some extent, make connections between the parents and their kids. But, you know, there are anomalies where you have two very good parents who really do things the right way. And then this kid just has something bent in their heart against God and everybody else. That does happen. I don't know if that's the case with Manasseh, but it seems like maybe it was. He just seemed to resent everything that his dad was for some reason. 
So Israel deserved judgment 100%. Absolutely. Okay. But when Israel hears Jeremiah's preaching in chapter 16, where he says, essentially, hey, look, you're going to be judged for what you've done. They, they say, wherefore hath the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Or they say, what is our iniquity? So if, essentially what they're saying is, wait a second, you're going to punish us for something that somebody else did. You're going to punish us. We're not Manasseh. We're not, we're not Manasseh. We don't worship Molech. We don't. We worship you. It's like, well, I mean, not really. <laughs> you know, you say that you worship me. Your words are close to me, but your heart is far from me. So they're, they're misunderstanding. They're comparing themselves to Manasseh. This is the same thing that we do. That's why we got to pay attention to this. Is They said, okay, well, compared to Manasseh, we're great. We don't worship a false god. We're not worshiping Baal, Ashtoreth, or Molech. So what's the problem? What is our iniquity? You're going to punish us the same way and to the same degree that you punished a guy who worshiped idols. So basically they said, look, we have to pay for the sins of Manasseh. That's not fair. Again, Israel's not too far removed from the righteous reign of Josiah. If, I understand the timeline, if we're near the end of Jehoiakim's reign, Josiah's only been dead for 10 years. So what that means is the whole revival that happened in Israel is only 10 years ago at this point. So it's those people who are saying, you're going to punish us? I mean, we just had Passover for the first time in a long time. I mean, Josiah changed everything. We fixed up the temple. We're reading the law. Like, what's the deal? What's the problem? We're having church, essentially. Everybody started going back to church. Josiah changed Israel drastically. He restored the temple, cast out the prophets of Baal, destroyed the heathen groves, desecrated Tophet, where Israel was sacrificing to false gods, and restored the Passover. And yet, all along, all along that time, you had prophets like Zephaniah in the synagogues or Jeremiah in the streets who were still preaching judgment. Think about this. They were still preaching judgment. Now, that's a scary thought. I've said for a while, and I don't know what this Asbury revival thing is. Like, it's all different. I get way too much information. I don't know what to do with it all. I hope that, you know, even if it is sort of a mixed multitude to some extent, that there's good that will come out of it. I just don't know. And I don't know who to listen to. And somebody's on Facebook, like, well, I heard this. I'm like, I don't know. Or somebody's like, I was there and I saw this. I'm like, I, I don't know, you know. But I do know this, that it would be a really, I've said for a long time, I've said this since 2015. 2015, you can go back, I'm on record saying this, that I believe that after whatever was going to happen, happened. I felt like in 2015 I preached a sermon called The Great Separation, The Great Falling Away, or The Third Great Awakening. And the concept was essentially that um, through a series of events, what's going to happen is, and this was pre-Trump, pre-everything. I need to print this out and just get it in like transcript form. But, but essentially there would be an involuntary separation. So what, what would happen, what kept happening is that Whenever something would happen, a controversial issue or whatever, everybody would run to the middle. Everybody would run to the mushy middle, not take a position. What I said was, the way that we're headed in this country, it's just eight years ago, is going to lead us to the point that you're not allowed to do that. You don't get to go to the middle. You're not allowed to go to the middle. We won't let you go to the middle. You have to tell us what you think. You have to say what you believe. And the middle is going to be stretched into two sides. And we're going to be more polarized than, than we've ever been. And the idea was that at that point when, okay, whether it's God's judgment comes, a difficulty comes, whatever happens, right, that's going to force people to separate into their camps. Tell us what you believe. Show us what you believe. You have to do it. You can't hide anymore in the middle, right? Okay, well, that has happened. I believe that idea is justified, that that has definitely taken place. 
And COVID, which no one saw, has accelerated that drastically. All right, well, then here's the way that works is when, when that involuntary separation takes place, and you see this pattern in the scriptures, you see it with the sheep and the goats, judgment, right? God comes down to a mixed herd, and through his own processes, he divides the herd, does it with the tares and the wheat. And you can see that all throughout the, I mean, the, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, you see it in the Old Testament, how one has to come out of the other. Okay, Lot had to come out of Sodom is another one. Abraham had to leave Ur, right? So there's all these different ideas of pulling the good thing out of the bad thing. And then God makes a decision as to what happens next. So once the herd, once the mixed multitude is separated, then God looks. It seems like to me, if you read scripture, it seems like to me, God then sits back and makes a judgment. He goes, okay, so I got this many righteous and I got this many wicked. So what do I do? If there's enough righteous, he moves, he works. Something good happens. But if there's not enough, if there's not enough, judgment falls. Now, the cool thing about that is in Psalms it says that the same judgment of God can judge the wicked and save the righteous, which is amazing. That God can cause judgment to fall on, on a people that somehow even through that action, the righteous are delivered by that. You see that in Egypt where the whole country experiences the plagues, right? So the system that the Jews are living in experiences all these calamities. And yet because of that judgment, the righteous are delivered and the wicked are judged. And as we view what's happening in our country, for example, we should think the same exact way. That God is judging America. We shouldn't think that judgment's on the horizon. It's here. It's 100% already here. But one of the reasons to stay on the ship, so to speak, and to stay right is because, you know, like you told Israel, it won't come to your house. It'll pass over you. The land of Goshen will remain lit. You know, you see that all throughout the scriptures uh, where God will deliver the righteous. Now, okay, so then God looks at how many are left and says, okay, well, I got Noah and his family and I got a whole world of people. What am I going to do? Well, because of Noah, really primarily, not even his family. So eight saved us to some extent. Eight saved a world of eight billion. That's pretty incredible pretty incredible we know with lot that if he had just had a few extra people converted in sodom god would have spared sodom there's also the suggestion he would have done the same thing with the tower of babel because he came down and walked in it i believe he came down in a semi-physical form and actually took a look at it from our perspective Bible says he came down to see it's interesting it's the same idea that you know jesus incarnated he came down to see and god does that before he pours out judgment he comes down and he sees things from our perspective the question is, do we have enough to save the thing? Do we have enough for God to be like, okay, I can work with that. You see it with Gideon, same thing. Everybody who's afraid, go home. Everybody who has mixed interests, go home. Guess what? That's what COVID did. It thinned the herd. So there are people who only got out of church because of COVID and they haven't come back and they'll never come back. They'll never come back. It will not happen. Our church is uh, an exception. Our church grew which is really incredible. A lot of megachurches are hurting. They're still hurting. They still haven't recovered. Um, and they may not recover. And God was going to break up that monopoly at some point, for sure. There's no doubt about that. But that process accelerated under COVID, and then, you know, essentially the idea is, okay, do we have enough left? If you're afraid, stay home. If you're impulsive, stay home. If you got mixed feelings, stay home. And then God's like, and I'll work with what's left. If there's enough left, and it need not be many, like Ari Tori said, it need not be many, God can do a great work. But he always thins the herd first, every single time. Okay, 
So the question is, do we have enough? Like, does our country right now have enough? It's why every person matters. It's why every soul one matters. It's why every person who turns from sin and gets right matters. It matters because it's one more grain of salt. It's one more particle of light, right? And that's how God judges. He judges by salt and light. He doesn't judge by how much darkness there is. He judges by how much light there is. He doesn't judge by how much is unsavory. He judges by how many people are savory. So this idea, and this is what we do, again, you know, not to beat this dead horse, but it's why we can't politicize everything, because that's not how God judges things. God doesn't look at the White House and say, well, I mean, you know, who's in there? I, I, think he could, I, I don't think he is less concerned about that. He turns the heart of the king wherever he wants. What does that mean? He predisposes, he moves intentions and desires, and he, he does, what, what does a river do? It follows the course of least resistance. So God turns the heart of the king. He doesn't force it to do anything. You don't have to force a river to do anything. You just dig the trench where you want it to go, and it'll go where you want it to go. That's what God does. He's like, no, 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 let's go this way. Let's go this way. Let's go this way. You know, I mean, goodness, if he can do that with Pharaoh, if he can do it with all the kings we see in the Bible, he can't do that with the President of the United States. I mean, of course he can. Come on. And yet we're so preoccupied with that. We're really, we're distracted. We're distracted. Okay, so what God's looking for is salt and light. That's it. And apparently when God judged Israel at this time, they didn't have enough. Now they thought, wait a second, this makes no sense. What is our iniquity? What have we done wrong? And God says, well, here's the thing. No, you haven't done what Manasseh has done. You don't bow down to fake gods. You do something worse. Excuse me? Yeah, you do something worse. Okay, exactly what is that? He says, you worship yourself. That's what you do. No, you don't bow down to Baal. You bow down at the altar of your own desires. And that's the generation that we're living in. Ironically, the whole me culture, the self culture that's been around for a long time in many different forms really accelerated in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Um, You have the children of the me generation that have grown up. Millennials, you can be anything you want to be. And Gen Z took that literally. And uh, so we have, and you can kind of trace out the progression of it in our our society. But we're at the point where, again, you know, is... uh, America's main religious fault isn't worshiping false gods. Now, we have that problem as well. And that issue is beginning to rise again. So we're living in a more pluralistic society, which is, when look, when Obama said, we are, no long, we are not a Christian nation, he was supposed to say just. It's actually in his um, teleprompter. We are not just a Christian nation. But uh, Freudian slip, he left out the just and said in his inauguration, we are not a Christian nation. We're believers. We are a nation of believers and unbelievers, of Hindus and Muslims, and he gave that big long list. What is he saying? People thought he was making his agenda public. Wrong. No. He was stating the obvious fact, and Christians freaked out because they hadn't heard a leader of the United States tell the truth about our situation. Obama was 100% right. Now, was he happy about it? Yes. Did he push that agenda? Yes. But there needed to be no agenda behind that for that statement to be true. It was 100% accurate. Christians just hadn't heard somebody like that say it, and they freaked out. You should have freaked out way before that, buddy. Way before that. We are living in a pluralistic society, so we are seeing the rise of other religions. 
we're even, I mean, we're even seeing a drastic rise in the occult, drastic rise in uh, Satan worship, and it's like documented. It's not even it's not a conspiracy theory. Like it's documented. Think about it this way: the Bible says that in the last days there will be one of the main things that that society will be categorized by will be witchcraft. And we're definitely seeing a rise in that. I think before anything is really harshly judged, you, you see that, right? So again, the idea is that he that letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And that refers to the Holy Spirit. And the word let means to prevent. The Holy Spirit prevents the worst from happening. And then when he is extracted or moved, the worst happens automatically. He's like a dam that holds the water back, right? You see that in Romans 1, that it says he gave them up unto their vile affections. So the only thing preventing them from doing the thing that they wanted to do was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit stays there and keeps them back. He resists them. It's why we need people who are indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit. It's why we need Spirit-filled pastors and leaders and churches, because we're the only thing holding back the worst possible outcome. That's what you are. That's why you can't have sin in your life. This isn't about you. This isn't about what you want to do. This isn't about how you want to live your life. You're one brick in the wall holding the worst possible thing at bay. That's what you are. That's why what you do matters, what you believe matters. If you show up to church or not matters. If you come to Sunday school or not matters. That's why it matters. People have, again, we, we have taken the me culture idea and we have applied it to Christianity. And guess what? You just lost the whole thing. You just redefined it. Now it's gone. Now it's something else. It's not what it originally was. So the Holy Spirit prevents and keeps the worst from happening. But once he's extracted, the worst happens automatically. And again, I think I talked about recently that that was Lewis's idea about what it meant when it says the wicked are turned into hell. That that's a voluntary activity. God doesn't turn them into hell. They turn themselves into hell automatically. And that's the path that any of us would trod if the Holy Spirit would just let us do what we want. That's Romans chapter 1. We're in a situation in our country very similar to this, where if we were to judge the nation's faults and we were to say, we're going to judge you just like God's going to judge, I don't know, pick a primarily pagan nation, somebody that believes something else, so an Islamic nation, a Muslim nation, a Hindu nation, right? If, If we found out God is going to judge India for their Hinduism, most Christians would nod their head and say, okay, yeah, makes sense. False God. Shouldn't be worshiping false gods. Don't do that. Or God's going to judge a Muslim nation. Okay, yeah, yeah, should happen. All right, and so then what if God came to us and said, but you're doing something worse? You're doing something worse. One of the worst things in a Christian's mind would be, imagine if, if one of you literally you left the church, you left Christianity, and you started bowing down to fake gods. Like, that'd be a pretty drastic change. And we'd all be like, I mean, have you seen what he's doing? Have you seen the shrine in his closet he posted on Facebook? Like, what is going on? And there are people who have that kind of stuff. It's crazy. But the truth is there are Christians who sit in churches every week of the world who do something worse than that. Worse. And we don't believe that it's actually worse, but it is. God said it is. God said that to worship yourself is worse than to worship an idol. Here's a question. What was governing Israel's actions? It wasn't a false god, per se, like Baal, but the wicked imagination of their own heart. They weren't bowing down to false gods. They were still going to the temple and presenting sacrifices, but inwardly they worshiped their own affections and lusts. Now here's the digression. The digression would be true worship, idol worship, self-worship. True worship, idol worship, self-worship. 
that self-worship is actually the worst of the three and that a degradation from true worship leads to idol worship. You see that with Israel all throughout the Old Testament. But then where do you fall from idol worship? See, our country is too sophisticated to worship idols, and we view those people as primitive. No, 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 they're a step above us. They're a step closer to the truth than we are. That's what we don't understand. Chesterton made a similar argument. So we are not more sophisticated because we worship ourselves. We're just more morally degraded. And yet it is based upon our own supposed sophistication that we say, well, you know, we don't believe in all these fake gods. No, you believe in the fakest of all possible gods, you. You believe in the most not real God there could possibly be, you. That's where we're at. Now, it turns out this makes sense. The desire to worship something external is built into the human experience. It's as natural as hunger and thirst. And it's actually one of the proofs, I believe, of the existence of God. The existence of hunger doesn't prove, but hints at the fact that there's something to satisfy the hunger. The existence of thirst hints that there's something to satisfy the thirst. Okay, well then what do you do with religious desires? What do you do with the fact that it's one of the most basic things in the heart of man? And you're going to tell me there's nothing corresponding to that? So we have something corresponding to every other desire, even if it's sinful. Even if in the biblical worldview it's a sinful thing. We'd say there's something that corresponds to the desire. Oh, but except for religious feeling. There's nothing that corresponds to that desire. It's a vestige of some part of the evolutionary process. It's like, what? this makes no sense. There is a corresponding thing that goes with the desire. But here's the deal. Just because we have that desire in us doesn't necessarily mean that we automatically worship the right thing. Just because you have hunger doesn't mean you eat the right thing. Just because you thirst doesn't mean you, that you drink the right thing. Just because you have a, a physical desire to be with another person intimately doesn't mean that you express that correctly in the world. Okay, so what that means is just because we have this religious feeling doesn't mean that we have this like automatic truth detector that says that this is the right one. So then it's really easy, and again, this is a case that Chesterton makes in The Everlasting Man, that paganism is basically that religious feeling playing out in the world of ignorance. So if you have an ignorant world who doesn't know anything about the true nature of God and they just express that desire for a relationship with the transcendent in the world, you, and they're sinful people, obviously, and they have free will, you naturally get this sort of paganism. And paganism is a guess. That's what it is. We're guessing at who God is. I don't know, maybe he's like a tree. Maybe he's like a bush. Maybe he's a fish, you know. Maybe he's the big guy in the sky or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's a guess. That's all it is. No one would guess that they're it. What kind of psychopath would be like, I think it's me. I mean, I think it's me. So you have to get to a pretty bad place to where you're thinking it's yourself. Okay, but here's the thing. Worshiping the wrong external being is not obviously wrong to the worshiper. For example, those that worship Allah are not doing so because they don't want to believe in the one true God necessarily, at least on the surface. They, at least, we would assume this is true, truly believe that Allah is the one true God. They truly believe that. Most people believe in God, or to be more exact, whichever God the people around them believe in. And it would be easy to assume that whatever God you happen to be worshiping, for whatever reason you found yourself worshiping it, is the true God. But at least in this scenario, the being is outside of you and regulates your behavior to some extent. And that's the thing that all of these even false gods have in common, is that 
there's, there's nothing true about the false god, but you've got a couple of the characteristics of the true God mixed in in your false worship. For example, the idea that God is external, that it's not you, that it's something outside and above and greater than you. That's correct. That's right. Now, it's not you know Jim Bob or whoever it is that you're worshiping. It's not him. But you're right about that. It is external. And to me, that shows that there's almost this, the fact that even false religions get that right, even false religions get it right that God is external. That he's not you. He's something else higher, above, bigger, stronger, better than you, more transcendent than you. And he regulates who you are. He tells you what to do. Make this sacrifice and I'll do this. I'll judge you. So he could be angry with you. He could love you, right? He could approve or disapprove. He right, Live this way or else. Whatever. Okay. Somehow even paganism gets that right. That's true. That's true. Now, it's not true of their God because he doesn't exist, but it is true of the one true God. So even paganism has enough intuitive sense to get some basic things right about the concept of God. And what that means is that we have in our conscience, apparently, that awareness is built into us. And what we do is when we degrade that awareness, as we talked about with our conscience, when we degrade it through sin, our awareness begins to dull. And when you dull awareness, when you start at paganism and you begin to get a rampantly sinful society, they will degrade from the paganism into a form of self-worship to where they lose even the small little vestiges of truth that were in the thing. They even start to reject that. Now God is no longer external, he's internal. Now, nothing external now regulates their behavior. They regulate their own behavior. My point is this. It's not hard to understand how people come to believe in a false god. That's easy to understand. It's not a mind bender why so many people miss the mark in their idea of God. But self-worship takes things one step further. Self-worship is worse than the worship of false gods because it rejects the only correct view of God contained in the false religion, which is that he is an independent, autonomous being who regulates and intervenes in the affairs of men. So self-worship rejects everything that is true about God. It redefines God to where he no longer is anything resembling a God, real or imagined. And that's where we're at. That we have redefined God to say, well, God is no longer external, autonomous, or independent, He's purely subjective. We can have a million of them and we all live in our own little moral universes. It's like, oh my goodness. Look, this is why Paul could make the case that he did in Athens. Why could Paul stand on the hill and say, hey, listen, even your own poets say that we are God's offspring. Okay, so he appeals to a pagan poet that Paul had apparently read, by the way. So this kind of blows the idea out of the water that you shouldn't read anything outside of the 66 books of the Bible. Can we stop with that, please? It's like a really bad idea. You should be reading a lot of things. And Paul was very, like he grew up in Tarsus, very multicultural, very, um, very pluralistic in a sense. And he knew what was going on. He knew what they believed. He pulled from a pagan poet. And he said, your most beloved poet says that we're God's offspring. Okay, let me tell you something. That's true, he says. Now, he's wrong about everything else, but he's right on this. We are God's offspring. And Paul says, if we are God's offspring, then we're not supposed to believe that God is silver or gold or stone or wood. Wow. 
brilliant argument. What does he do? He pulls the little bit of truth out of the false religion and says, you got this part right, but the truth that you find here doesn't point to the truth of the thing totally. It points away from paganism and to the true God. So there's, a, there's an idea that what's true in these false religions is like a signpost, essentially. It's, it's a road sign. And it doesn't point you to, hey, believe this thing. No, it points you away from that religion. I made this case with a guy who sat down with me. I did his, I did his podcast, and um, so I didn't know what I was getting into. But that's one of the questions he asked me. Is, You're saying all of the religions are false? It's like it's a bad question. It's a poorly formulated and naive, ignorant question. Okay, so here's, here's, here's something that um, some people might disagree with, but is actually totally true, is that there is a hint of truth in almost every non-Christian religion. Almost every non-Christian religion has truth in it. For example... The great monotheistic religions, I say great as far as size, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, believe in one God. There's one God. Guess what? That's correct. That's true. And Islam is right about that. Now, they're wrong about other aspects of God, but they're correct about that one thing. But just because they're correct about one, that one thing doesn't mean they're correct about everything. They're not. In fact, the correctness of that idea doesn't point to the correctness of the thing as a whole. It points away from it give you three things real quick. Number one, based upon this idea that, okay, we can devolve into a place where we regulate our own actions, and even Christians can fall into this. Number one, the Word of God must be the primary regulatory influence in your life. So here's what this does. The reason why God gave us a book, letters, black and white, between two covers, is that it's something objective, it's something external, again, and it's something He's promised to preserve, so it's not going to change. And he's given it to us, and it's supposed to regulate our belief and practice. That's what it's supposed to do. His word, and we could go into that whole idea about his word. That it's his word, that it's the word of God that regulates us. It's not our feelings about God. It's not our desires about God. It's not what we think. It's the word of God that regulates us. David said, order my steps in the word. What is it? Here's the question. Here's how I know if I'm worshiping myself. What is it actually that orders my steps? What is it actually that orders my steps? What is that? If it's anything other than the Word of God, I'm bordering on self-worship. Or maybe I worship somebody else. Maybe I worship my spouse. Maybe I worship my job. I'll do whatever my boss says. I'll do whatever they say, regardless of what it costs me or my family. Well, then maybe that's what you worship. But you have to have something external and unchanging to regulate you. We believe that it is the Bible. Number two, self-worship is fundamentally the exaltation of the human mind and will against God. Self-worship is fundamentally the exaltation of the human mind and will against God. Here's an idea. God is a person, and a person is a mind and a will. God is a person, and a person is a mind and a will. God's mind is infinite, and His will is perfect. That means He can think of the greatest good and perform it every time. That's why we can say that God is good. It's a technical description of His nature. Your mind and your will are limited. Your mind can only think of good in finite terms, and your will is imperfect, and therefore, even the most disciplined will falls short of choosing the best goods consistently. Worshiping God is basically this, submitting your mind and will to His. That's essentially what it is. Because in doing that, you admit that He is who He says He is. And as long as we don't do that, we are expressing through action, I don't actually believe that you know what you think you know, and what you say that you know. I don't believe that. I don't believe that you actually know what you're talking about. Okay, well then you're denying the nature of God. You're actually saying, I don't believe that God is what He says He is. That's actually what you're saying. It's learning His thoughts, truth and faith, and living out His will in the world. That's what worshiping is. 
Worshiping self is exalting your mind and your will in the place of God's. It's leaning onto your own understanding and living out your will in the world. Number three, self-worship is the path to meaninglessness. Self-worship is a path to meaninglessness. Self-worship isn't just doing the things wrong you want to do, although it can be that in practice. But it is a practice of generally deciding right and wrong purpose and value for yourself. Listen to me. It's where you define good as well as evil. It is undergirded by the belief that you needn't look anywhere outside of yourself for purpose, meaning, acceptance, and fulfillment. But this presupposes that you can provide those things for yourself on an ongoing basis, but this doesn't work. You are irrational from time to time. You're not merely as objective as you assume yourself to be. You're a terrible judge of what is good or what is bad. And what you feel today is a good thing, a good purpose, being an art major, for example, maybe in a few years show itself to be a bad idea. Hence, we have the crisis of meaninglessness in our culture. It stems back to our rejection of God. Technically speaking, we are left to interpret our own moral standards, purpose, meaning, acceptance, etc., which we cannot do, so we lose moral standards, purpose, meaning, acceptance altogether. That's what happens. When we worship ourselves. we're on the path to a meaningless existence. And here's the thing. All we are told nowadays is that the only path to meaning is essentially to worship yourself. That is an exact reversal of the truth. Because if you are left to regulate everything about yourself, from your purpose, your meaning, your values, definitions of good and evil, good luck. Good luck. You could spend a million years trying to figure that out for yourself and be completely wrong. And here's the sad thing. A lot of people who believe that way and live that way are going to get to the end of their life, the end of their existence, look back and say, I was completely wrong about all of it. I was completely wrong about all of it. That's how self-worship ends. Hey guys, if you enjoyed that, make sure you rate, share, and follow the podcast. When you follow, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. And make sure you connect with us on social media at Zach Evans Podcast. God bless. Thank you.